And welcome back. Dr. Gary Simmons with us. Gary, my sister died of a uh, brain tumor. She fought it. Uh, they uh, operated on her, and then it came back about two years later, and uh, she died. How does that kill you? Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm so terribly sorry to, to hear that. Uh, it We're um, a long way off still in being able to uh, cure a, a lot of brain tumors. Um, they're, they're some of the the most resistant to uh, our modern uh, interventions. But how does it kill you? It, it, it Most often what happens with uh, a, a brain tumor is uh, we can control it kind of locally. I tell people that it, it's almost like a, a weed, if you will, where um, surgically we will go in and take the plant uh, out, but the roots are still there. And unfortunately, for some some of the tumors, the roots extend way out. I mean, yeah. all the way to the other side of the brain uh, by the time they're discovered. In fact, early on in neurosurgery, uh, one of the treatments was to take out nearly half the brain, and uh, but they would simply find the, the tumor would appear on the other side. Um, and so they have these extensive root systems, if you will, that surgery is certainly not going to cure. And so it's going to depend on things like radiation and chemotherapy and, you know, gene therapy coming up and, and all sorts of other treatments that are coming down the line. But what happens, therefore, is it really gets into all centers of the brain. And uh, as, as it expands, it increases pressure against the surrounding brain tissue and starts to kill off the surrounding uh, brain tissue. And when it, when it is affecting areas of the brain that keep, keep things running, if you will, you know, the brain, and you, you might compare it to a computer, but it's got all sorts of on and off switches that uh, uh, is going to keep it running. And if you start knocking off the centers that are keeping it running, eventually uh, it will succumb. Now, a lot of times the, the people will become so debilitated by this that their actual deaths are more related to other, other things that, that go down, particularly the lungs. So if you're not up and moving a lot, your lungs begin to fill up with mucus and stuff, and they they uh, then get infected and there are pneumonias and, and that sort of thing. So uh, a lot of times the deaths are not straight up due to the pressure in the brain, but there's been so much deterioration in function that other systems start to give in. Yeah, it was a sad time for us all, Gary, but uh, she fought it for a long time. Yeah, I, I have to tell you that, you know, one of the things that I think needed to come out of me when I was writing the book was an utter admiration for my patients and uh, their families, frankly, because when, when a patient goes through any of these devastating uh, illnesses or injuries, they're facing it, but boy, their, their families are face, facing it as well and their, and their close friends. And I'll tell you through the years, I, I was absolutely bowled over. If you want to talk supernatural or, you know, preternatural or whatever, it, 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 it never ceased to amaze me. The bravery 
uh, and the grace, if you will, of of people going through uh, what they're going through. And and I saw them, unfortunately, you know, literally by by the hundreds every year and thousands when you start to uh, total them up. Um, and it, it just it just never ceased to stun me, inspire me, uh, you know, touch me in, in ways that are that are hard to put into words. So I'm I'm hoping that came out uh, in the book as as well. That that it's just just stunning how brave and and full of grace so many of the people were. And and I'm like I said, I'm including very much the families because they're going through their living hells uh, as well. And I guess the corollary to that, which unfortunately you're you're very aware of, and and I've had my family tragedies as well um, is but but it's in your face every day when you're doing what I've been doing uh, and that is life is fragile yeah uh, what what we have here what we experience every day and we take for granted it it can turn on a dime and and does so you know when you hear the helicopters going overhead to uh, you know your local medical center or trauma center, um, you know somebody's life has just been turned upside down in the in the blink of an eye, uh, and so I I hope that people also get from it that we need to be cherishing you know kind of every minute uh, experiencing uh, life for the miracle that it is, uh, helping each other out, uh, helping each other uh, enjoy it and cherish it as well because. Boy, it, it is so easily lost. Let's go to the phones. Let's start with Gene in El Paso, Texas. Welcome to the program. Hi, Gene. Thank you. My pleasure. Go ahead. Well, uh, Dr. Simmons, uh, 75 years ago, I had three open skull surgeries. I'm told that neurosurgeons learned a lot during World War II on dealing with head trauma. And I was the beneficiary of that. How old were you? Were you a kid, Gene? I was nine months old. Oh, my God. When I had the accident. And the three surgeries were before the age of two. It's pretty young, yeah. Doc, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely young. We, we don't want... Uh, our children having to go through that, that's for sure. But it's uh, an amazing testament, I think, to your fortitude more than anything. How, how did they tell that a baby has that kind of problem? Well, uh, it depends on the problem. If it's, you know, we often deal with trauma to babies, for example, and and uh, you would deal with that uh, as you would any trauma. You you evaluate their overall function, their neurologic function, and and uh, end up getting scans. Uh, and uh, the, you know the amazing thing in my time, not when this happened with Gene. I will tell you when when this happened with Gene, uh, they were lucky if they had X-rays uh, to shoot. Uh, but in my time, you know, we, we get a great look inside using CAT scans and and MRIs. Uh, and then there are babies, unfortunately, who have their own brain tumors, and uh, this that may present by uh, the baby not reaching milestones or even uh, even deteriorating from milestones that they obtained, you know, in terms of their development uh, as babies and children. 
But, uh, you know, I again, I've been the beneficiary of, of an era where we can just take a look inside without opening up. Uh, although I got to say, the MRI was brand new when I started in neurosurgery. Right. Let's go back to Gene, see if he has another question. Gene, you still with us? I'm still with you. Uh, the uh, uh, the psychological ramifications of surgery at that age uh, took uh, a toll on me. Uh, I'm dealing with some neurological problems now at the age of 78 in that uh, I, I crushed a, a couple of uh, a disc and, and some, uh, what do you call them, that come between the discs. And so I'm having some mobility issues, some that are, you know, probably neurological based. Uh, but as we say in the board, on the border, así es la vida. You got that. <laughs> Thank you. How would you have handled that, Gary, as a neurosurgeon? Yeah, I, you know, the, he, he brings up a, a few uh, really important points. Um, one is that, you know, these major illnesses, these major uh, occurrences in our lives, they're not one off. They don't, they don't, you know, occur. You, if you survive it, okay, everything's fine. We just go back to life. They, they have ripples in a pond through people's, throughout people's lives. And hopefully we, we all learn how to, to support people who have been through that sort of thing uh, and try to maximize what they can, they can get out of their lives. Um, but uh, another issue that uh, he kind of brings up is the fact that uh, as we age, um, we do lose uh, we do lose nerve cells. We we lose uh, nerves and connections, and and there there is a slow uh, loss of what's there. So if if you're if you've had significant previous injury or disease, you know, the, the overall amount of reserve that you may have may not be as, as high as it once was. And so you may feel the effects of aging a little bit more than, than other people. Um, and so uh, it's just something to be aware of. It's, 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 in the end, you got to maximize what you got no matter what. Uh, but we need to be aware that having gone through major illnesses, um, just the whole reserve of our nervous system may not be w what it once was. And I'm, I'm acutely aware of that uh, myself, having gone through a major neurological uh, illness. I know, you know, that I don't have what I once had. Um, and it, it's important, therefore, to try to maximize it. And then he, he brings up another whole other world of neurosurgery, and that's uh, that uh, we deal with uh, the nervous system wherever it is, and one of the places it is is all the wiring going from the brain to the rest of our body, and the main wiring, the, the central wiring, we call the spinal cord, and that's housed in our spine. And uh, over time, our spines begin to wear down, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, our discs, uh, and uh, that can start crushing on or irritating the nerves that are inside. And so there's a whole line of business in, in my world of dealing with the nerves and the spinal cord within the housing in the, in the spinal column within the vertebrae. 
and uh, that can cause pain. It can cause immobility uh, and and dysfunction. So that's a really another important part of uh, what the nervous system has to deal with over time. Gary, what is that soft spot on the top of a baby's head? <laughs> they we call that a fontanelle. Uh, there's there's a funny thing about that. Um, uh, it, it's kind of a if if a baby is brought into a party of neurosurgeons, it's so funny to watch. But the first thing a, it, a neurosurgeon does, and it's a reflex, you don't even think about it, is reach and feel the fontanelle, feel the soft spot. But it's there because um, the the brain in the first, particularly the first year of life, grows very fast. And the brain determines how fast the skull grows. The skull has to grow to encompass it. So when you're first born, the skull isn't one big solid piece. It's several plates of bone that come together. You can even kind of, in a young baby, you can kind of, you can kind of push one uh, and, and watch it dip next to the other. But uh, so these bones are not grown together uh, when a baby is born. And where they come together, uh, there can be gaps depending on how quickly the brain is, is uh, developing and growing. And there is uh, a couple of big gaps that we call the fontanelles or the soft spot. Uh, the biggest one is right there in the front. And that's what you're feeling. And you're actually feeling kind of the pressure within the, the brain when you feel that. So when we're worried about it, a baby's brain health will sometimes feel that uh, to make sure it's not bulging out, if you will, uh, because of increased pressure within the brain. Next up, Laura's with us in Mesa, Arizona, west of the Rockies. Hey, Laura, go ahead. Hey, you know, it sounds like you're talking about my father. He was a corpsman in the Navy, and he um, wanted to donate his body to science and let medical students learn from his uh, body because, I guess, you know, he went to medical school. And um, as he grew older, he I mean, he was always working out religiously, and then suddenly he started falling, just suddenly would just fall. And I would say, what happened? He'd be like, I don't know. I don't remember. And so finally his sister died of dementia, and he started noticing a memory loss. So he went to his doctor and complained about it, and they did an MRI, and they found there was bleeding in the brain. This was in 2017. It was first detected. Now, I had to start going with him to doctor's appointments because he actually forgot how to get to his doctor's office that he'd been going to for years. So when I went to the neurologist's office with him, they went over the MRI results and said that since 2017, the bleeding has not changed. It has not absorbed back into the body, but yet it hasn't increased. And then he continued to fall, and then his memory got worse and worse, and I watched him slip away. I didn't realize it, but he wasn't... He was forgetting to do things like pay his bill, pay um, file his taxes and things like that. Mm. So I had to kind of step in and start taking over for him. And then suddenly he um, had a stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke. And so um, he was rushed to the ER. But I remember when I found him on the floor and he looked at me, it looked like he was just a shell. He couldn't communicate. And so um, they said they could send him to specialists. So they sent him to the best hospital here in Arizona to see what they could do, and they said there was nothing they could do for him, so they could basically just kind of let him die. And unfortunately, he wanted to donate his body to science, and I was starting to get the paperwork in process after I found out what happened. And unfortunately, I had an incident where I kind of uh, had like some kind of a brain incident where I was trying to sign the paperwork. I couldn't even remember my name. I couldn't even sign my own name. 
I ended up going into a coma for like three days and in the hospital in the emergency room, and the time uh, window lapsed for me to process that paperwork for them to accept his body for donation. He's 88 years old, and unfortunately, he's sitting at Research for Life now, and they're telling me they can't accept his body because they can't accept the paperwork. And I'm wondering, first of all, is his condition, could it be possibly contagious? Could I now have, you know, what he had? Because they did run a bunch of tests when I was in the hospital. All right, let's find out from the doctor before we hit the break. Is it is brain disease contagious? I think not, Dick Gary. Yeah, but most, most as far as we know, are not uh, contagious. There's obviously viruses and, and uh, uh, bacteria that can infect the brain. Does meningitis um, do that? Yeah, so meningitis would be a, an example of uh, an infection that can get into the brain and can cause all sorts of problems. But it, it sounds like she's talking more about a dementia um, and a progressive dementia, and they come in multiple forms. That Alzheimer's the, the most common. It could also be related, in his case, to uh, something of. Uh, problem with the vasculature, with the vessels. If you have a lot of atherosclerosis, uh, the vessels in the brain start to go bad, even all the way down to the super small ones. And there can be small hemorrhages and small strokes, and eventually there can be bigger ones. So that can get mixed in with Alzheimer's or can be a problem in and of itself. Generally, these are not contagious. Um, there may be some uh, you know, there may be some genetics involved. There's a lot of talk about that, but it's not straight up. Just because somebody in the family had Alzheimer's, for example, does not mean that uh, you will. Um, but uh, there can be some genetic factors, and none of these are, you know, one-to-one. So uh, it's possible that they're related, but not, not a strong uh, relation. We're going to take a break in just a moment with Dr. Gary Simmons and then come back and take final calls with him. We're talking about his book, Death's Pale Flag. Gary, where do you get the book? Uh, the book goes on sale basically everywhere, particularly online, uh, on my birthday, uh, June 27th. So it's uh, next week it uh, comes out in all the typical places. Well, happy birthday to you, by the way. Well, thank you, although... At this stage, I don't celebrate them as much as I used to. I know what you're talking about. So we're going to come back in a moment and take final calls with Dr. Gary Simmons right here on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back. Dr. Gary Simmons with us. His website linked up at coasttocoastam.com. you got to be proud of your book, Death's Pale Flag, huh? Uh, I I certainly enjoy it. I, I hope other people do. Um uh, it uh, so far has garnered some very nice uh, reviews, but I'm waiting for some negative ones. Are people over-medicated, in your opinion, Gary? Oh, geez, uh, there's a, uh, a real uh, Pandora's box. It I'll sure is. This. Uh, I, um, you know, through the years, uh, much of my life was getting up at this hour and uh, running into the hospital to see various uh, illnesses and injuries, and you would eventually do something called a history and physical, where uh, you have to document uh, the patient, what's going on, and what their physical is. And part of that is documenting their medications. And I can't tell you how many people I would uh, be admitting who are on 15, maybe 20 uh, different medications. And I can tell you this: uh, there, there is 
no scientific evidence, no biomedical evidence uh, that that many medicines uh, are good for anybody. Uh, I'm afraid that they get they get put on one at a time without a lot of consideration of their interactions and the overall effect it has on people. So one answer for you, uh, just through sheer experience, is. Um, is that uh, I do think we tend to over-medicate, at least at some levels. Now, you could flip it around and say that um, I also think, you know, there are many uh, illnesses and diseases that we're probably not treating enough uh, and and not, you know, people don't have enough access uh, to primary care to be getting uh, their medical care early uh, and and getting the appropriate medications. So I guess, you know, it's kind of a two-headed monster. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to John in Alberta, Canada, east of the Rockies. Hey, John, welcome. How are you doing? Good. I just was curious if the doctor ever heard of the phenomena where if someone has Parkinson's disease and they've got hand tremors, if you hand them a glass of water, the hand tremors stop and they're able to take the water without spilling it? Yes, uh, because um, it's it's the type of tremor, the Parkinson's disease tremor, at least early on, is predominantly what we call a resting tremor, where it only really comes out when they relax the arm. And you'll see it that we call it a pill rolling motion uh, in the hand. But it can get worse and worse. And over time, it reaches a point where it can be unmanageable. And that phenomena won't won't go away. I mean, it won't go away just with movement, but uh, but that's true. That early on, uh, particularly, that's one of the ways to uh, call it out as a more Parkinson's-like uh, tremor. What is an essential tremor, Gary? That goes into this idea of the familial tremor, or tremor or essential tremor, which is this. It's this. Um, a little bit of tremor that we all have, and you can, if you haven't noticed it, do some heavy workouts or something, or get scared by something, and you'll notice your tremor. And and as I was saying, you know, when you have people do brain surgery, when you're teaching uh, residents brain surgery, everybody has a tremor to one degree or another. Sure. And part of our tre- part of our training is to teach how to reduce that tremor by resting the arm and uh, getting it in a very comfortable position. Some people can stop their tremors merely by thinking about it. What does that tell you? Um, well, geez, uh, somehow they're overriding it. Uh, but uh, uh, I would say that uh, if it is, you know, in the essential tremor uh, realm, uh, it is probably more uh, related to, uh, you know, that it's in its earlier stages. And also, you know, they can help it just by, by calming their arms uh, and, and getting them in a relaxed position. So that may be part of it, too, just relaxing. The more juiced up you are, the worse an essential tremor is going to be. Does Parkinson's show up on the brain in a CAT scan? Uh, early on, no. Uh, eventually, uh, particularly with uh, MRI scanning, uh, it, it will show up. Let's go back to the phones. Let us go to Lori in Vermont. Welcome to the program on the wild card line. Hi, Lori. Hi, George. Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. And hi, Dr. Simmons. Hi. Hi. I was going to tell you when you were saying, you know, is there life beyond? I was approximately 35 years ago. I was a um, social worker. 
on-call social worker in a trauma center. And Friday nights and Saturday nights, as you know, I'm sure, tend to be busy. Yes. And there was a young group of four teenagers that arrived, had had a horrific accident, and a car accident. And the young driver was 16 years old. She had just had her license for about three days. And, of course, they were, all four of them were very intoxicated. And by the time they arrived to the hospital, three were DOA. The fourth one died up in the OR. And, you know, it was very, very sad to say the least. And I felt this weird energy in the ER where the other three were. And, you know, they were trying to identify this young driver, and they couldn't. And she didn't have her license on her, no ID, but she did have a high school class ring. And no one could read the inscription, the name on it. And I had had a look at it, and I identified her name, and all of a sudden, that weird energy, I kid you not, was with me right beside me, like it was this young girl. And I'm thinking, you know, what are you trying to tell me? And the injuries were so horrific, they told me not to go in and look at them, or I'd never, ever be able to do the job again. Wow. And these were nurses that had, you know, been well-seasoned 20, 30 years, of nursing, and I took their advice and didn't go in. And so I finally figured what she was doing. Her parents, of course, arrived and were in the family room, was she did not want them to come in and see her with those horrific injuries. And so we did identification by clothing and, you know, jewelry if there are any birthmarks, you know, I came up with clever ways to work around it and told the parents, I think it would be best if you saw your daughter. You know, this is horrific for you now. Once you've had some time to sort of adjust to this and in the funeral home. And they finally agreed to that. And they leave to go home, and about a half hour after they left the hospital, this young girl's energy left me. Wow. How do you explain that, that, Doc? Well, she she hits on some very important notes. Uh, One one that I just would comment on is uh, one of the things she was talking about is the busy Friday and Saturday nights. And... And for us, you know, there was definitely it was definitely seasonal too. Summer would just uh, could really become uh, quite nasty with car accidents, and we'd have a lineup in the ICUs of of teenage kids. It was always, you know, 16 to 20 uh, uh, in coma from terrible car accidents who were not wearing their seatbelts, and that's just if there's any message on this is. Uh, absolutely seatbelts and 
and airbags in those cars, uh, and obviously no alcohol, and be careful. But uh, it is, it's tragic because you see these lineup of, of teenagers, many of which won't come out of coma, many of which die uh, there on the spot. Now, I, I, I do have to say that there are many people I know uh, through the years in the trauma centers that I've worked in who have had experiences similar to that or their own experiences. I wish I could say again that I personally have, but in some ways, I kind of think, um, you know, in my job, what I was doing, it was important to kind of shut off everything, it, it, you know, kind of shut off all your detectors, empathy detectors, uh, spirituality detectors, anything, um, because we really had to, you know, you were talking about it, people didn't want you to see the wounds, and, and but we had to look at them. So you had to roll from one to another. Sometimes in the night, we would get 20, 30 emergency consultations. And, you, you know, you basically have to kind of have so many of your, your human components shut off so you can just do your job, work from one case to another and get not get too bound up. So uh, I retired a couple of years ago from clinical neurosurgery, and, uh, I, and I've noticed that I'm a much more emotional, much more sensitive person than I ever was. So uh, who knows? Maybe uh, I'll start picking up on, on that sort of thing uh, myself. Text and tweets. Tom, what do you have for Dr. Gary? Hey, Gary, Darlene in Studio City would like you to talk about the part of the brain that makes us addicted to things such as food, cigarettes, and the like. If there is. Is there, Gary? Yeah, there. you know, whenever you talk about uh, parts of the brain that do this and parts of the brain that do that, we, we certainly, uh, there is some uh, segmentation, if you will, uh, particularly of certain functions such as motor function and uh, sensation and stuff like that. But, but there's also all these systems within the brain. So the, the addictive components of the brain uh, are spread out across uh, wide areas of the brain, uh, it, going everywhere from uh, what's called the limbic system, the, the amygdala and the hippocampus hippocampus and the prefrontal cortices up in the frontal lobes and then down into the brainstem, something called the periaqueductal gray. And I, it, anyway, these systems, they're all involved in um, uh, how your, your, your body, how you, your brain interprets the world that it's being exposed to. And some of those interpretations are necessarily unpleasant. So including pain and fear and, and that sort of thing. Why? Because that helps you survive. You know, if you, if you walk into a burning house, you feel the burning and you get out. Um, and so we have systems in our body that absolutely are going to warn us that there's danger. Uh, but then there's systems that run along with that that are saying, well, you know, if you're in a lot of pain, we, we want to control it. So we have systems that, that actually have our own painkillers with, within. And these systems are the ones that often respond uh, to the opioids, the narcotics. Uh, and uh, as we said, the brain is very, very changeable, and it can become very used to uh, stimulating those parts of the brain, the parts of the brain that try to chill out the unpleasant parts. 
Uh, and so anyway, it's, a, it's kind of a, a long way of saying that it's really spread out through the brain. Let's go to Joe in the Bronx, New York. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. How are you? Yeah. I'll go. Uh, I, I, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Uh, Simmons, uh, yeah, if uh, I had... I have a relative that had brain surgery recently, and it was for the removal of a four-inch benign tumor in his frontal lobe. Um, Now, uh, do they use or do they commonly use anti-seizure medication uh, either uh, just before the surgery begins, during the surgery, or immediately after the surgery? And because uh, he suffered a massive seizure after, right after the surgery when he was being transported by a nurse up to his room. Uh, and they called the code blue on him. They brought him back. Uh, and uh, he's doing okay now, but, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been long since his brain surgery. Uh, I wanted to know, is, is that common to, uh, for patient uh, having brain surgery to suffer something like a massive seizure? 40 seconds left, Gary. Go ahead. Yes, it certainly can be, and quite often they will use anti-seizure medicines up front around the time of surgery because the brain goes through a major change when you take out a four-inch tumor. Even if it's benign, the brain had gotten used to it, and uh, now it's irritable. And so often anti-seizure medicines will be used, but they're not perfect. And so people can have major seizures even while on anticonvulsants, on anti-seizure medications. Uh, And that would be the call of the treating team as, you know, whether they will use it or won't use it. Still there, Gary? We lost him right at the end, but perfect timing. For Adam Thompson, Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehut, Sean Ladisor, Stephanie Smith, Chris Boros, Tim Banal, George Knapp, and Ian Punnett, I'm George Norrie, somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.